that you're here this morning. You being here is a blessing to, to me and to all of us. Uh, I just want to welcome you. I know that Dave's already done that, but we're glad that you're here this morning. And wasn't it great to hear the rain and know that it wasn't snow <laughs> on the roof? That was phenomenal. It wasn't sleet. It was just rain. And I actually came to church today in this shirt without a coat on December 27th. So uh, it's wonderful to have you here, especially on such a nice day. My name is Bob Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here. I just want to turn your, to have you turn your attention to your bulletin for just a moment or two uh, before Joe comes and opens God's word for us. A couple of things that I want you to be aware of. A lot of times this time of year, people want to know about contributions and how to get them in on time for them to count in 2015. And there's instructions uh, in the bulletin and also on the blue sheet in your bulletin that'll explain that to you. So if you have any questions, please look at that and check that out. There's also some, some important things coming up. Friday, January 7th, uh, there's a thing called Life Group Leaders Boot Camp. And if you are involved, certainly if you're a Life Group leader right now, or if you desire to be or want to be, this is a great event for you to come to. Um, Jennifer and Jim do a phenomenal job of, of putting these events on. It'll really give you a good idea of what it means to be a life group leader and equip you, in fact, to be a life group leader. So that's the green sheet that's in there. Please don't miss that. And then I also want to let you know that in a couple of weeks, on the 10th and the 17th, we're going to have a thing called Group Link. We've had it here in the, in the fall. It's, it's, it's an opportunity for you to sort of check out all the life groups, all the life group leaders that are available. They'll be in the lobby. You'll be able to talk to people. Being in a life group is really one of the best ways to get connected here at Community Alliance Church, to not just come and come and go and come and go, but come and get connected. And that's really what we desire for everyone, so that we can be connected to one another as well as connected to the Lord. So please be prepared to check that out on the 10th and the 17th. This morning, again, Joe Flores, our, our operations pastor, is going to be coming and, and opening God's word. Look forward to hearing from you. Joe, come. Hey, good morning. It's a real pleasure to have the chance to be with you guys this morning coming off of the Christmas celebration. Real quick show of hands, who made it out on Thursday night to the Christmas Eve service? Oh man, all I got to say about that is, oh, what a birthday party. My family is sick of me telling them how good it was, but I was just so excited. Probably the best Christmas Eve service I've ever been to, and I've been to a lot of them. As Bob mentioned, uh, my name is Joe Flores. Most of the time here at Community Alliance Church, I get to serve behind the scenes in the role of operations pastor, but today I have the privilege to come before you and lead us as we study God's word together a little bit. We're going to be spending our time together this morning in Matthew chapter 2, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and start making your way there. We're going to get there in a little bit. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's no big deal. If you look in seat backs in front of you, you're going to see some Bibles there. Feel free to use those, or we're just going to put the scripture up on the screen. You can follow along there. To kind of set us up this morning, though, I want to ask you guys a question. And when you think of Christmas in our culture, whether you like it or not, a big part of how we celebrate is the gift giving. So the question I want to ask you this morning is, is there anybody here who will admit that the whole gift giving thing with Christmas kind of stresses you out every year? I, I, I just want to admit that to you, like gift giving stresses me. It's, it's not because I'm cheap and I don't like to buy presents for people. It's because over the years I've come to the realization that I am, I'm just not a very good gift giver. I'm not good at it. And, and I, 
my problem is compounded by the fact that my wife is one of these people that never seems to want anything. Like seriously, I could give her a piece of paper and say, you've got a half an hour to write down one thing that you want. I'll come back 30 minutes later and she'll hand me a blank piece of paper. So as you can imagine, every year, as we get into the fall, get through November, what in the world am I supposed to buy her? This year is no different. I'm like, she doesn't want anything. What am I going to get her? Finally, Thanksgiving Day. Get the Black Friday ads. And I'm flipping through. And there it was on the page. The perfect gift. As I'm looking at this page, my mind is recalling how many times she has said to me how difficult it is to keep our ceramic tile kitchen floor clean with little kids and lots of crumbs. And I'm looking at the page. It was like God spoke to me. And I thought, I know. I'm going to get her a vacuum. Now, okay, before you judge me, in my defense, you have to realize that I was always told that you can never get your wife anything with a cord attached. And this was a cordless vacuum. (laughs) So in the absence of any female input whatsoever, I headed out and bought her a vacuum. And what do you know it? My wife, who never wants anything, the next week she goes shopping with her mother and comes home and is all excited. And she says, I I think I found what I want you to buy me for Christmas. I found this piece of jewelry I really, really love. Can you get it for me for Christmas? And of course I said to her, honey, no way. I already bought you a perfect gift. Why am I going to get you jewelry too? That doesn't make any sense. But actually, actually, um, I, I wasn't a jerk, and I, I thought, you know, this is really my opportunity. I'm going to surprise her. I'm going to go, and I'm going to get her this jewelry, and it'll be an opportunity on Christmas morning to, to surprise her with something that she really wants. So I'm excited. I get her the jewelry, and a little bit before Christmas, I'm wrapping it. And I'm down in the workshop, and I wrap up the jewelry box, and I realize, you know what? She's going to be sitting there Christmas morning, and she's going to realize right away that I surprised her with jewelry, and it'll ruin the surprise. So I need to make this a little bit more of a surprise to her. What am I going to do? I look around, and I, I see a big bigger box. So I get this bigger box out, and I put the wrapped box of jewelry in the bigger box, and I thought, you know what? To further throw her off, I need to make it heavy. So when she picks it up, she won't know what's going on. And I'm in my workshop. I'm looking around. I really don't have anything heavy except for boxes of 9 millimeter ammo. So <laughs> this is all true. I'm not making this up. I get out I get out the boxes of 9 millimeter ammo, and I, I put it all around the jewelry box. I close up the box. I wrap it up. I'm all excited. Christmas morning comes finally that time, the kids are opening their presents, but finally it's time for dad to give mom her gift, and I, I hand her the box, and it's, it's heavy, and she says, boy, I hope I don't have to carry this. And in my mind, I think, you know, I'm going to give her one more obscure little hint, and I said, it's actually something you can carry with you all the time. So she takes the paper off, she opens the box, and when she looks inside, she doesn't see the jewelry box, because all she sees is a bunch of 9 millimeter ammo, And all she remembers is that I just told her it's something she can carry with her all the time. And I'm looking at her face, and I'm waiting for her to just smile and be so happy with me. And this look of disgust comes over her face, and she just goes, you bought me a gun. (laughs) Even when I try, even when I try, I got a reaction, but it definitely wasn't the reaction that I was expecting. And you know what? Part of Christmas, part of the excitement is the reactions on people's faces when they get the gifts. And some gifts are just like that. Guns or jewelry, one way or another, they're going to get a reaction. 
And this morning, as we sort of tie out Christmas, I want to look one more time into the Christmas story. Because at the heart of Christmas is a gift that demands a reaction and requires a response. It's the gift of Jesus Christ. And as we look at Matthew chapter 2, we're going to see that even before Jesus could take a step or speak a word, he begins to force a reaction in those who are becoming aware of his existence. And this morning we're going to look a little bit at the reactions that we see in Scripture in Matthew chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, please follow along with me, or we're going to take a look up at the screen, and we're going to start there in verse 1. Matthew writes, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Matthew says that there were these guys called Magi who came from the east. And possibly if ever at Christmas time you had set up a nativity scene, at some point in the process you reach into a box and you pull out three guys that probably look like kings and they had gifts in their hands. In fact, we have a few of them on our stage up here this morning. And this story here in Matthew chapter 2 is the inspiration for having wise men in our nativity scenes, as well as the inspiration for some of the songs that we sing at Christmas time, like We Three Kings of Orient Are. Now, if you have a few moments this morning, I would like to tell you everything that we know for sure about the Magi. Are you ready? Nothing. We really don't know very much at all about the Magi. In fact, it would be easier for me this morning to tell you a little bit about what we don't know about them or what the Bible doesn't say for sure. First, the Bible doesn't say that they were kings. Matthew actually uses the word here, Magi. And Magi is the word that we get our word magician from. And so when you study what that means, we find out that the Magi who came weren't actually kings. They were actually well-educated astrologers who specialized in the interpretation of dreams and the study of the stars. Second, we, we don't see the Bible ever saying that there were three of them. The word magi is simply plural. And back in the second grade, we all learned that plural means more than one. So there could have been two magi, there could have been 20, there could have been 200 People just assumed that there were three magi because there are three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so they figured, well, if there's three gifts, it would take three guys to carry them, so there must have been three magi. But the Bible doesn't clarify that. Third, and I'm really not trying to ruin everything you thought you knew about Christmas. If you, if you have wise men and three of them and they have crowns at home, don't go change anything in your nativity set. But the Bible never says that they were actually at the nativity scene at all. In fact, from Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, if you glance down there, you'll see that we're led to believe that they had been following this star for up to two years. So by the time that they arrive in Bethlehem, they're no longer there at the nativity scene in a stable to see the baby Jesus. They're at a house, possibly when Jesus is one year old, maybe all the way up to two year old, to see the child Jesus. There's some other traditions about the Magi or the wise men, but all we absolutely know for certain is that they came from the east, they followed a star, and they were there to worship Jesus. Possibly, possibly the lack of information about who they were in the story speaks more to the fact that this story isn't about that Magi as it is as much as it is about the one that they were there to worship. 
So Matthew's telling us that Magi roll into Jerusalem. They're looking for one born the king of the Jews. And pretty quickly we see in verse 3 that people begin to have a response. If you glance in verse 3, you'll see Matthew writes there, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Before we move on, you've got to look at Scripture sometimes when we're reading it and ask lots of questions. When I study the Bible, I, I look at a lot of questions, and when, and when you ask questions, you'll begin to see some things that maybe don't fit, and that can lead you to what's going on in the story. So when I'm reading this passage, I look down and I think to myself, why would Jews who believed and taught that the Scriptures said that God would send a Messiah all of a sudden be disturbed, or maybe your Bible says troubled, when the report of a Messiah actually came. I mean, we tell our kids Christmas morning is coming on December 25th, and I haven't seen one kid yet wake up on December 25th and be disturbed or troubled that it came and that there are presents under the tree. So these Jews are disturbed when their biggest present ever from God finally arrives. Like, shouldn't they be excited? Shouldn't they be running through the streets telling everybody? Actually, shouldn't they be heading the five miles down to Bethlehem to go and see the Messiah for themselves? But instead, the Bible says that they were troubled or disturbed. What's going on here? If we read on a little bit, we begin to find out just what is happening. Take a look at verse 4. Matthew writes, when he had called together, he's being, he meaning Herod, called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asked them, where is the Messiah? Can you tell me, where is this Messiah, this king of the Jews? Where is he going to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who were shepherd my people Israel. You've you got to realize here, King Herod, he, he's a politician. He's not a religious scholar. So he calls together all the really, really smart Bible religious people. And because, Jewish, the, because the Jewish beliefs influenced the Jewish law so much, when the Bible says the teachers of the law, these were really like the lawyers of the time. So he gets these chief priests and these religious lawyers in the room. And we've got to understand here that in this society, people looked up at these guys for being super spiritual. They were like the religious icons. I mean, they went to church all the time. They gave money. They knew how to pray really, really loud and really, really pretty. And in fact, look at what they do when Herod asks them, where is the Messiah going to be born? It, it's not enough for them just to say, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. They actually know he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And let us show you how much we know by quoting the verse too. But the problem with these religious people is this. Their point in the story ends with what they know about the Messiah, but not with what they do about what they know. Even though, even though there were reports of the promised Messiah from God, and even though, using a Bible verse, they even knew where he was going to be born, they seemingly tell no one, they do nothing, they go nowhere. Their reaction to Jesus was this passiveness, this disengagement. They didn't take what they knew and apply it to what they did. It's kind of like this. When, when I was in college... I, I worked at one of the large retail home improvement stores. I applied for a job after my, after my freshman year. I got the job, and they threw me in the flooring department. 
And for the next three years, I sold literally tens of thousands of dollars worth of carpet and hardwood flooring and ceramic tile and vinyl flooring and all kinds of flooring stuff. And my job was when customers came in with questions about how to install the flooring, I had to explain to them how to do it so that they got the job done right. And so I was able to explain to customers how to choose the right carpet padding for their carpet, what the proper nail patterns were for subflooring, how to set a, a piece of ceramic tile and get the proper spacing, and how to lay floating floor, and, and much, much more. And after I explained to them all about how to do it, I had to make sure that they had the proper materials and the right tools to get the job done on their own. It's been a while, so I feel like I can let you in on a little secret if you guys promise not to tell anybody. When I worked there, I never had once ever in my life laid a single square foot of carpet. I had never set one ceramic towel. I had never driven one nail into a piece of hardwood flooring. I had gotten really, really good at knowing all about how to do it from reading instructions on the back of products and reading how-to manuals. And I was really, really good at telling others how to do it with a lot of confidence, but I never actually did it myself. And the religious leaders were kind of like that here, weren't they? Like, they knew all about what was going to happen from reading the Bible, and they were really, really good at telling others that you need to be like this. But when we see from Scripture here, and countless times through Jesus' ministry to come, that they didn't actually do it themselves. And when a report of the Messiah came, instead of being excited and finding him and worshiping him, they react with fear because a true Messiah would mean that their religion would be exposed as empty. And so actually here in this passage, instead of doing nothing, they do worse than nothing. They take the scripture about where the Messiah is going to be born, that's intended, them to point the, that's intended to point them to Jesus, and they take that scripture and give it to Herod to use to find Jesus to eliminate the threat to, to their religious facade. And before we move on here, I, I just got to challenge us with this. I got me and you. How, how in your life, how in my life, are we living like these religious leaders? You see, it's easy, the more you come to church, you're going to realize that it's easy to begin to look really religious on the outside and impress people with our spirituality. I mean, for goodness sakes, folks, we're all here on December 27th, the Sunday after Christmas. I don't know if I should let you in on a little secret, but this is like the Sunday that everyone skips church. This is, this is the Sunday that we even let the operations pastor speak. And, and yet, and yet we're, we're all here. I mean, does it really get more spiritual than that? But, but here's what I know, and here's what I think these religious leaders show us, and here's, here's what we need to apply in our lives, is the more that we focus on appearing religious and doing religious things on the outside without allowing Christ to change us on the inside, the further we grow away from Jesus, not the closer we grow to him. These religious leaders are passive, disengaged, Let's see what Herod does with the information that they give him. How will he react? Read on in verse 7. The Bible says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. 
As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, if this is the first time you've ever read through this story, or if it's been a while and you don't remember the details, it can appear on the surface that Herod is on the same page as the Magi. But if I give you a little bit more background information on Herod, we're going to see that he had ulterior motives for finding out where Jesus was. In the Bible, Herods are kind of like George Bush's. There's more than one of them, and it's really difficult to keep straight which one people blame for what. And so this Herod here, he's called in history Herod the Great. He's called the Great because under his supervision, there were these magnificent construction projects, palaces and temples, public buildings, even entire cities were built. And he had all these accomplishments. But the other thing history tells us about Herod is that he was extremely paranoid. He was constantly afraid of any threat that might come and take his throne in his place of power. And history also tells us that when he felt that something was a threat or that someone was a threat, he would deal with brutal, lethal force with that threat. In reading history, you'll find a long list of people that Herod actually had killed because he thought they were conspiring against him. And this list included people close to him, his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law. He even killed three of his very own sons because he thought they were trying to take his throne, as well as his quote-unquote favorite wife. When Herod thought something was a threat, he would do anything to eliminate the threat. And so Herod responds here the way we would expect him to respond in light of that, and he begins to develop a plot. And he calls the Magi in. And if we're making a movie, verse 7 and 8 would be, would be where we would play the sinister music. And he tells them, I want to go and worship the king. Can you let me know where he is? But in reality, he wanted to get a location so he could send soldiers to have him killed. In fact, this, this sinister plot is confirmed in verse 16. Because when the Magi don't play along with the plan, we see there that Herod was so violent and so adamant about keeping his power and so cold in his heart that he actually ordered the murder of every baby boy two years old and younger in Bethlehem. He was a wicked, wicked, awful man. He responds to Jesus with violence and aggression. But there, there is a point I, I want to make here, and this is sort of sidetracked. This isn't part of the message. This is free. We're not going to like plast the plate again or anything. I just want to share it because I, I feel like this is what God wants me to say here. You, you have to pause for a minute in the story and, and notice, who is it? Who is it that God uses to send the Magi on the final leg of their journey towards Jesus? Verse 8 said that he, he meaning Herod, Herod sent them to Bethlehem. At this point, we're led to believe that the star had disappeared. The Magi are actually walking around Jerusalem saying, where is, the, where is the one born the king of the Jews? So it seems like they don't know his location. And so God uses Herod, the ruthless, wicked baby murderer. Not a star, not a prophet, not a dream. He uses Herod, an evil king, to direct the Magi to the Messiah. Here's the point. 2016, something big is going to happen in our country. We're going to have an election. And we're going to choose the leaders for the next phase of our history as a country. If you're anything like me, in past election years, you may have gotten all wound up in the election. And, and, and the closer you get to it, the more you fret over what's going to happen and who will be chosen. 
And if you're anything like me, you probably have a candidate that you think would be the best and a candidate you would, be, you would think would be the worst. And sometimes the candidate that we think is the worst is the one that gets chosen by our country to be the leader. And when that happens, we can begin to feel depressed and anxious and worried and think the future is bleak. But let verse 8 here be a reminder to us that God can use any king, any leader, no matter how evil they are, to accomplish his plans and purposes. Verse 8 teaches us that no matter who is in office, God remains on the throne. So Herod responds with violence and aggression because he realizes that Jesus truly is a threat to the throne of his life. Jesus came to be king. If we read on now, we'll see that the Magi also realize that Jesus is a, is a king worthy of a throne. Take a look now in verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. It helps to get in the mindset of what is going on here. These magi have been traveling on a journey for probably over a year. In that time, they had covered hundreds, if not thousands, of miles. Imagine with me for a moment, where were you last Christmas? Like, what did you do? And then what if, after the day after Christmas last year, you had started on a journey? And every day after that, between then and now, you journeyed five, maybe ten miles closer to your destination. After journeying for 365 days or more, how happy would you be to finally be where you're going? So the Magi, they make it. They're there. The journey's over. They come into Bethlehem. And as they're coming through the town, maybe they approach the house and they hear laughter. Or maybe they hear the cries of a child. And with a caravan of the size of which that they would have traveled with, it's probably likely that when they came into Bethlehem, which was a very small town, there was a great big commotion. And so people are wondering, what's going on? What's happening here? Matthew actually says, not that they went into the house, but that on coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother. So it's likely that Mary hears what's going on out in the streets, and she comes out with the child to see what's going on. And here come these magi. And they come up. They get off whatever animals they have been riding. They come before Jesus and his mother. Now, you've got to wonder, like for Mary, would it have seemed strange to her a, a poor wife of a carpenter, to have such wealthy foreigners visiting her? Or maybe when you've conceived a child to the Holy Spirit, it takes a whole lot more than that for something to be weird. And the Magi, they, they get down, and, and the Bible says that they bow down. But if you have uh, the New American Standard Version, it translates that word bow down a little bit better. It literally says that they, they fall down, like, like flat on their face, fall down. Here's these wealthy men. And they fall down flat on their face in front of the child. Their journey's over. They see Jesus and they just lose it. They fall on the floor and worship him. Maybe it was weariness from the journey. Maybe it was happiness that it was just over. Or maybe they truly recognized that they weren't just in the presence of a child. They were in the presence of a king 
who is God himself and would change the world. And so they fall and they worship him. And after a period of time, Matthew writes that they got up and they opened their treasures and presented to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The word for treasures there is actually treasure box or treasure chest, which makes sense that the Magi would go back to their animals and they would get off of their animal a big treasure chest and they would carry it over in front of Jesus and they would open it up and they would give him gold, which is a very valuable metal. And then they would give him frankincense and myrrh, and, and, and which are costly spices and perfumes and incenses. And they give these costly gifts to Jesus and his family. And you can just imagine the scene of worship and gifts and people are looking around and this is really, really weird. This doesn't happen too often. It doesn't really happen anywhere. And, and there, this is happening. And if you read on, Matthew writes something that seems kind of odd. In verse 12, Matthew writes this. Coming off of this whole scene of worship and gift giving, Matthew writes, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Does this seem strange to you? I mean, if I'm talking to Matthew, I would say, Matthew, you mean to tell me that these guys travel thousands of miles, possibly, for over a year. They show up in town long enough to worship, give gifts, have a dream, and then they head home? Like, if I was part of that group, wouldn't I have wanted to see at least Jesus do a miracle? Maybe I said, you know, Jesus, while we're here, can you make us a dinner out of fish and loaves? Or maybe, maybe here's some water, Jesus, make us some of that good wine. Or maybe just get a signed diaper from Jesus or snap a selfie or do something, right? Like, if I travel somewhere for a year, I don't want to stay for just a short period of time and take off. But nothing like that happens. They show up, they worship, they give crazy expensive gifts, they have a dream, and they head out. And if Matthew would say something back to me, he would probably say, look, I didn't get to make this stuff up. I'm just telling you what happened. When I'm reading through this story, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Unless, well, well, what if the point of this story wasn't that the Magi came to Jesus to obtain something from him, but to offer something to him? What if their entire mission was simply to give to Jesus something that they held personally valuable, something that was important in their lives? What if the only reason they came to him was to come and worship him and take their treasure chest, come before the child, open the lid, and say, Jesus, we want to give you what's inside. Two Fridays ago, I took my kids to the pediatrician. It was shot day. And the night before, my son, Easton, he's four, he asked me, Daddy, am I going to have to get a shot tomorrow? And I've got this thing that I, I, when my kids ask me a question, I want to be honest with them because I want them to trust me. So I said back to him, Easton, do you want me to tell you the truth or do you want me to tell you what you want to hear? He said, Daddy, I want you to tell me the truth. So I said, yes, Easton, you're going to have to get a shot tomorrow. And I don't, I don't know what I was really expecting to happen. Was he going to look up at me and say, Dad, you know what? Thank you for telling me the truth. Even though I know it's going to be difficult to have a shot, I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> he did exactly what I would have done when I was four. <laughs> I don't want to get a shot. The next morning, the next morning, first thing he says when he wakes up, I don't want to get a shot. 
the whole way to the doctor's office. I don't want to get a shot. I mean, by the time we get there, I was so miserable. You could have given me 50 shots if it would have just made him be quiet. Like, I'm thinking the whole time to myself, I know the the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians to speak the truth, but he didn't have a four-year-old at home. So I decided then and there, next time this happens, next time it's shot day, I'm lying to my kid. I don't care. So, so we get there, and sure enough, the shot's over, and, and, and it, you know, then the magic moment, the shot happens, then the magic moment comes, and, and the nurse says, you can go and get something out of the treasure chest. So the tears dry up, and the pain all goes away. We walk around the corner, and there's the treasure chest of the doctor sitting on the floor. And the nurse goes over, and she opens the lid, and it's like, oh, five-cent toys, okay. And, and then she says those magic words, that will make any kid forget he had just taken a needle in the leg. She said, you can have anything you want. And I want to consider this morning, and ask you to consider with me, what if in your life you had a treasure chest? And inside your treasure chest of your life was everything that you held dear. Inside the treasure chest is what's most precious to you. If Jesus came and you opened your treasure chest and and let him look inside, what would he see? And if Jesus asked you, can I have anything I want? What's the thing in your life about which you would say, you can have anything you want except that? What would your except that be? Maybe Jesus would look in your life and see your schedule, your calendar, and it's full. And you know, you know that if you're going to grow in your faith, that you've got to make the time to spend time with Jesus in the Word and talking to Him through prayer. And maybe He's telling you, look, you've got to get involved in a life group. You need connections with other Christians. But you're just so busy. And when He tells you you've got to make the time, the truth is you're just not willing to cut anything else out of your life to make time in your schedule for Christ. Maybe he looks in your treasure chest and he sees your wallet and he sees your bank account. He's telling you, I want you to give a portion of your finances to help further my ministries. But when you look at that and he wants it, you think to yourself, if I begin to give the way that Jesus wants me to give, I'm afraid that I won't be able to live the way that I want to live. And Jesus says, I know, I know, but you got to trust me. Or do you look in your treasure chest and the thing that's most dear to you is your career? The time and effort that you put in at work, you know that it takes away from you being the husband or the wife or the mom or the dad that God wants you to be. But the truth is, it's just easier to tell your spouse or your kids no than it is to tell your boss or your customers no. Because when you're honest, success at work or success at the job site is more important to you than success at home. Maybe you look in your treasure chest and you see your kid's future. When Jesus looks in, he sees a whole bunch of concern over your kids getting the right grades, being part of the right friend groups, being being on the team, never missing a practice or a game, getting a scholarship so they can get into the right college. But he doesn't see a lot of concern over how your kids are doing spiritually, over whether they're coming to church to worship him or whether they're part of a youth group or a children's ministry to make connections with other kids and students. I had a youth pastor tell me not too long ago that your kids will know what's important, not by what you say, but by what you make sure that they do. Maybe you look in there and it's your pride. It's your pride. 
you know it's time to have that hard conversation and apologize and ask for forgiveness. You know that you've got that problem in your life that you need to get some help. You know that it's time to schedule that appointment with a counselor or with a pastor. But doing any of that would mean that you have to admit that you're wrong, that you have weakness, that you can make mistakes, and you won't let your pride go and let Jesus in. Or maybe, like Herod, when you look into the treasure chest, you see your throne. You know that Jesus wants to be not just your buddy or your friend or your 24-hour fix-it man. He wants to be the king of your life. And until this day, you've never been willing to let him take your place on the throne. And this morning he's saying, it's, it's time. It's time for you to step down, let me in, and let me be the king of your life. Here's what I think I know. As soon as I ask you that question of what's the thing that if Jesus looked in your treasure chest that you would be the most reluctant to give him, you knew exactly what he would want. Here's what I want you to know this morning. It isn't really your treasure that Jesus wants. What Jesus really wants is your heart. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, just a few chapters later, Jesus is preaching this sermon. And he's talking about a whole bunch of stuff. And then in Matthew chapter 6, 21, he says this. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. What Jesus really wants is your holy, devoted, undivided heart. But that in order to get it, he needs to get your treasure because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And if Jesus doesn't get our treasure, then our treasure will always stand between our heart and him. So this morning I ask you, if you look into your treasure chest, what do you see standing between your heart and Jesus? And if Jesus asked you, can I have anything I want? Would your answer to him be, you can have anything you want? Or would it be, you can have anything you want except that? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And in a moment, we're going to sing a song called We Fall Down. But just for a moment, before we sing and as the band plays, I want you to do something. I want you, in your mind, imagine opening up the treasure chest of your life, and I want you to ask Jesus a question. I want you to ask him, what do you want? And then I want you to shut up. Don't say what you want to give him, but listen to what he wants to say to you. We're going to sing together now. I ask that you would stand to sing. If God's working on your heart, if he wants you to deal with something, I just invite you to come forward. There's pastors or elders who'd be happy to pray for you. Please stand and sing with us as we sing We Fall Down.
pray with you. Let me pray over you as you leave today. Lord, we come before you. May we see the heart of the Magi, the heart of humble worship, and giving to you what we held most dear. God, challenge us in our lives as we leave this place. God, what is it that's standing between us and you? Give us the courage and strength, Father, to lay that at your feet so that we can have our heart fully devoted to you. Ask this now in the precious 